As we prepare our hearts to hear God's word preached, let's, uh, let's first prepare our eyes by opening up the Bible so that we can follow along and hear the reading of the scripture together. Uh, you can find today's scripture passage if you are um, using the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 1030. Um, it's Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 22 today. The scripture passage that we're about to read functions as uh, kind of a capstone on this entire section of this, uh, this portion of Revelation, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, which is also Jesus' complete word to his universal church. And that really explains the remarkable range of issues that Jesus addresses in these seven letters. No matter where you're at in church history, no matter where you're at in global culture, there's at least one letter that's going to speak to you. And I think, as I've meditated on this passage over the last week, I think that this letter really, maybe more than any of the others, speaks to us in our American context. I think, I think we, in our culture, need to hear this text. The church this week is completely opposite of the church last week. Last week, we found a church so desperately in need. They needed to know that they were secure. This week, we find a church so secure that they've been lulled into a deadly complacency. The problem with the church in Laodicea is the problem of independence. The unnamed protagonist in Jack London's short story, To Build a Fire, suffered the very same condition, this problem of independence. Clothed in fur, with food on hand and a dog by his side, he felt confident. Confident enough to ignore the advice of older, wiser, more experienced men counseling him not to travel alone. But what did they know? They were just being overcautious. Or so he thought when he set out from camp expecting an uneventful solo day trek across the Yukon in winter weather that turned out to be much colder than he had ever experienced before in his life. But again, he's confident. Until tragedy strikes. And then tragedy strikes again. And all of a sudden, all of the man's material possessions become worthless against the elements. And so as his circumstances grow more dire, the recurring theme of the, of the short story changes from, wow, it's cold, to if only someone else were here. If only there was someone else here, someone else that could help. In the end, it didn't matter what he owned. What he needed was a companion. Again, someone who could help him when things got very dangerous. And in today's text, we're going to see that lesson applied to matters of the soul. The church in Laodicea was confident, well-clothed, well-fed, 
they thought that they were okay. But that sense of independence was leading them towards a spiritual disaster. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, Jesus says to this church and to this church, to us, what you really need is me. We're not better off on our own. We need someone who can help. The only way that we're going to get to our desired destination of the heavenly kingdom is if we depend on Jesus. So this last letter in this series of seven letters calls us to be a dependent church, fully trusting Christ for all of our flourishing. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, please let's turn our attention now to the word of God and read together Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we humble ourselves before you now, even now owning our great need. We need to depend on you. We, in fact, do depend on you. This time together in your word will not be profitable unless you attend it with your Holy Spirit. And so I pray for that. I need you. We need you. So please be here now. Accompany the preaching of your word with the illumination of the Spirit so that we would each hear your voice speaking to our souls this morning so that we would each be strengthened against sin and so that we would each conform, be conformed more to Christ. Give us the gospel and speak to our hearts now we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's how the text works. Uh, that we just read. There are three parallel sections in the text moving from the outside 
to the inside. Uh, the first and the last verses, the opening and closing verses, point us to Jesus' rule and reign. Then the second portion and the second to last portion describes our relationship with Christ as a banquet. And then the middle section addresses dependence, and that's the heart. Uh, verses 17 through 19 of our text. That's where we find Jesus' pastoral focus. In that verse, uh, he is showing them their improper dependence. And then immediately after, he invites them to a proper dependence on him. So the first thing Jesus is doing in this passage, again, since he is uh, the heart of the passage is focused on the, the problem of independence... The first thing he needs to do in this passage is to show us that independence is indeed a problem. Uh, what he's doing is he's unmasking our deadly independence, and he does that by forcing the Christians in Laodicea and anyone else throughout history who reads this letter to ask three questions. First, do I worship Jesus as a glorious king? Or a small savior? That's the first question. Do I worship Jesus as a glorious king or a small savior? As we've seen in all of the other letters up to this point, the opening verse tends to highlight one aspect of Jesus' character that's particularly relevant for that church's struggle. And here, for Laodicea, he highlights his authority. Verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is the Amen, and we say the word Amen at the end of our prayers. What does it mean? Amen is a word of affirmation. Uh, so Jesus is the authoritative word of affirmation, of agreement. He seals his own testimony. He's also the faithful and true witness who knows and tells the truth with precision and accuracy, and he's the beginning of God's creation, or as the NIV translates it, the ruler of God's creation. Uh, this is a verse about Jesus' kingship. In Revelation 21.6, Jesus uses the same word beginning to highlight his cosmic rule. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, meaning that he possesses authority over every single thing in the created order. So here we have three phrases highlighting Jesus' authority and supremacy because the quest for spiritual independence begins by minimizing Jesus. As soon as we minimize Jesus, we start to go out on our own. And it's subtle. We start to think that he's insignificant, that maybe he is a savior, someone who can kind of help me with my sin problem, but not a king who has opinions about the way that I live, who knows every single thought, knows every single pattern in my heart. So when we're confronted with Jesus' majesty, 
we need to ask, do I worship Jesus as a glorious king or a small savior? And that leads to the second question. Has Christ made a discernible difference in my life, or do I look just like the culture around me? Has Christ made a discernible difference in my life, or do I look just like the culture around me? Verses 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's what it means to be lukewarm. And I actually tested this this morning. Back in the back, we had this uh, little water tank, and there's a setting you can try room temperature water, okay? What makes something room temperature? Well, it means that the water is exactly the same temperature as the rest of the air around it. There's no discernible difference between touching the water and then just sort of being. There's no difference at all. So applied to the Laodiceans, there was no discernible difference between them and their surrounding culture. Stepping foot in the church was just like stepping foot in the civic hall. There was no difference at all, and Jesus finds that disgusting. He says, if you don't change, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's the image of a banquet where a dining guest would spit out a beverage that they found repulsive. In Greco-Roman society, the expectation of the host was that they would serve tasty beverages. So they would serve either hot wine meant to warm and comfort the guests or chilled wine uh, to refresh them and bring their spirits to life. No one wanted to serve or receive lukewarm wine. I was describing this to my kids, and one of, one of my kids compared it to hot chocolate. Uh, he said, oh, it's like this. You can serve really good hot chocolate, or you can serve really good cold chocolate milk, but lukewarm room temperature milk with like chunks of chocolate just kind of floating in it? That's gross. And he was absolutely right. It's gross to think of clumpy, lukewarm milk. And Jesus says that about the church. Uh, a church that looked exactly like the culture. Jesus says, gross. And so Jesus wants them and all hearers to ask, has Christ made a discernible difference in my life? Or do I look just like the culture around me? And then that leads to the third question from Jesus, where am I overconfident? Where am I overconfident? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's classic overconfidence. And the Laodiceans were used to a sense of confidence. They were used to saying, we don't need anything. About 30 years before Revelation was likely written, an earthquake leveled many of the cities in their region. And most of the other cities in that region asked the Roman government for aid to help rebuild their city. 
not Laodicea. They rejected Roman help. They rebuilt the city themselves. They raised the funds from their own money, their own wealth, rebuilt the city. They said, we need nothing. And now the church is saying that to Jesus. The wealth and the prosperity of the city around them and of their own lives had lured them into a false sense of strength and self-sufficiency and confidence. But Jesus saw their true condition, poor, blind, and naked, poor, because they were choosing earthly wealth over kingdom riches, blind, because they couldn't see their true spiritual condition, naked, because their works couldn't cover their sin and their shame, which should lead everyone who hears that accusation to ask, where am I overconfident? These are the hallmarks of spiritual independence, a small savior, culture conformity, and overconfidence. That's, that's when you have those things, that is the recipe for you to say, I'm good. And just to be crystal clear on this, the Laodiceans thought they were fine. I think that's the most sobering thing about this passage. From an outside view, these Christians had everything going for them. They, they were healthy. They looked healthy. They looked wealthy. Probably even they looked godly because Jesus doesn't critique anything about their doctrine or their practices in this passage like he does in other letters. The Laodicean church would make a fantastic Instagram photo of a lovely life, hashtag blessed. And yet Jesus saves his harshest critique of all of the seven churches for them. Uh, to put it in great British bake-off terms, uh, the Laodiceans thought they were star bakers until Paul Hollywood tasted their work and said, that's disgusting. I can't even eat that. It's a devastating criticism, devastating critique for people who thought that they were on top. And that's why we need to hear this message. I think that as American evangelicals, our tendency is to rank ourselves too high. Just look at the seven letters. Remember the flow of all of these seven letters. Of the seven churches, only two of them were healthy. The other five had significant problems. But again, American evangelicals will tend to hear numbers like that and say, well, I, I think we're probably in the top two. I, I think we're probably in those two churches that, that are okay. We're pretty healthy, when in reality, it's far more likely that we are like the church in Laodicea. We tend to minimize Jesus' lordship over our entire lives. We tend to look just like our consumeristic, materialistic, political, always busy culture. We tend to be overconfident, ranking ourselves above the global church because we have the right theologians and the right practices, 
And when we do that, we are basically saying, we need nothing. We, we don't need anything. And so the question for us this morning is the same question that's governed all of the seven letters, does the shoe fit? When you hear Jesus' critique, does the shoe fit? Do I worship Jesus as a glorious king or a small savior? Has Christ made a discernible difference in my life? Or do I look just like the culture around me? Where am I overconfident? We need to let Jesus' words search our hearts this morning. Because even if we are rich, we can't afford to live independently from Christ. Such independence is deadly. Far better is the path of dependence. That's the answer to all of our spiritual ailments depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that sounds familiar, it is. It's the silver thread tying together every single one of Jesus' seven letters. How can we become loving without losing our zeal for truth? How can we remain faithful while suffering? How can we root out falsehood to become truthful? How can we find purity? How can we become genuine? How can we remain secure in each and every one of these letters, in each and every struggle that the church faces? The solution is to depend on Christ. Let the saving power of Jesus Christ so transform your life and your Christian community so that y'all, as a church, are not tempted or swayed by the affirmation of the world, by the possessions of the world, by the behavior of the world, or by the threats of the world. Cling to Christ no matter what. That's the invitation of this letter. It's the invitation of the entire book of Revelation. And maybe you hear that and you say, I do. I do depend on Jesus. And that's great. I want to celebrate anyone, any one of us who is trying to cultivate a life of dependence on Christ. And so let me just tell you, keep it up. Keep up trying to depend on Christ. And at the same time, let me tell you, don't be naive. Uh, don't be naive, especially if you're really quick to say, yeah, I got it. I am dependent on Jesus. Don't be naive. Every, every religious impulse in our culture tells us don't depend on Jesus. Don't Submit to Jesus. Live your own truth. Create your own identity. Do it yourself. Be independent. And that's the water we're swimming in. It is nearly impossible to not be impacted by that self-sufficient religious drive and then accidentally pull that into our spirituality. I think most of us, as well-meaning as spiritual as we may be, I think most of us are just one step away from saying, I don't need anything. And so even while we affirm our commitment to Jesus and celebrate our dependence on Christ, 
Go ahead and take another look at your hearts. Ask Jesus to open your eyes so that you can see any hidden areas of rebellion because there are going to be some. Uh, And then root them out through the power of the Spirit so that you can depend on Christ all the more. Now others of you may hear this call to depend on Christ and you're put off by it. Maybe you've been taught that dependence means you're weak or that dependence on someone else is going to hinder your happiness. And still others of you may simply wonder, is Jesus worth it? And so no matter where you're at in that spectrum, uh, from depending on Jesus, uh, trying to faithfully depend on Jesus, to maybe being super skeptical about depending on Jesus, and anywhere in between, no matter where you're at, Jesus has a word of encouragement for you. Here's what he says. Depending on Jesus brings life. Dependence on Christ brings flourishing. And Jesus has three gracious invitations to prove it. Here's his first invitation. First, he says, buy from me. Buy from me. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The Laodicean banking industry was robust. But Jesus says, buy your riches from me, eternal life, eternal riches and glory that can never be lost. The Laodicean wool industry was also thriving. They had plenty of nice clothes. Jesus says, buy your clothing from me. Find the white robes of salvation from me, meaning that all of your sin is covered and your impurities are washed away so you're free from condemnation and can enjoy resurrection life. Laodicea also had a large medical school, but Jesus says, buy your medicine from me. Come to me and I'll make you well. Come to me And I'll give you spiritual sight so that you can note your condition properly and continue to come back to me for the remedy. Buy from me. And if you're wondering whether or not that's a sound investment, remember that Jesus bought you first. Before he counsels you to buy from him, he already went out of his way to buy you with his life. Romans 5, or sorry, Revelation 5, 9. Through his blood, Jesus ransomed people. He bought people. Same word as he uses here when he says, buy from me. Jesus says, I've already bought you. I've bought people for God through my blood. That's the gospel. Jesus has bought us at the sacrifice of his own blood as our ransom so that we can find riches, righteousness, and spiritual sight in him. It's a a wonderful invitation of grace. And that's why Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In other words, Jesus is a loving Lord, not a tyrant, 
not a charlatan. We can trust Jesus when he says, buy from me. Next, Jesus calls out, dine with me. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the great reversal of the tragic banquet that happens in verse 16. Previously, Jesus says, when I was dining with you, your works were disgusting and it made me want to spit them out. But now he says, I'm still willing to come back. I'm still willing to keep trying this whole banquet thing again. See, Jesus doesn't leave a scathing one-star review of a restaurant saying, the food was terrible, I'll never eat there again. He doesn't spit out his food into his napkin and then storm off. He continues to offer himself to us again and again, like a guest pounding on the doors of our heart, saying, I want to feast with you. And a banquet meant a relationship. That's what he's offering. He's offering the invitation to, to be with him. Dining with Christ means we have intimate fellowship with him. And it's a promise that we have now through the Holy Spirit and a promise that we can look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth when we dine with Christ face to face. Again, this is an amazingly gracious offer, especially considering the spiritual health of all of these churches. Remember, only two out of the seven churches were in good shape. If Denny's said that only two of their seven restaurants were any good, you would never dine at any of them. But Jesus continues to pursue his people. He continues to come back again and again to anyone and offer himself to them. Again, this is the last letter. The invitation is for anyone, which means any of the other churches who read this letter, any of the other Christians who may have gone astray, even you, even me. And so, even if you have diminished Christ as a small savior in your life, even if you are horridly culture-compromised, even if you are drastically overconfident, if you repent, Jesus promises to be with you. That's, that's such grace. Even now, Jesus is saying to you through the Holy Spirit, dine with me. Enjoy fellowship with me. And then finally, reign with me. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's an image from Roman coins that showed the emperor's son seated next to the emperor on a two-seated throne. And Jesus is saying he will share his honor and his glory with you when you conquer in faith. We've heard that word conquer in each and every letter. Jesus tells his church, conquer. The Roman military 
would have understand, understood this as a, as a battle, as a military conquest. The Laodiceans would understand it as an independent show of strength and wealth, but Jesus completely redefines the word. How did Jesus conquer? How did Jesus overcome the world of sin and death? Through the cross. Jesus' honor was won through faithfulness and humility and suffering. And in the same way, Christians conquer. We overcome the world through faithfulness and humility and suffering. Not through our own strength, but through Christ's strength working in us. We conquer by depending on Jesus. Of course, Conquering may look different depending on the situation, and we've seen that in each letter. Conquering is different for each single church. A culture of persecution requires steadfast perseverance, whereas a culture of affluence requires Christians to refuse to idolize wealth. The externals of conquering may differ, but the heart remains the same, and the reward is the same. Submit to Jesus and receive heavenly, eternal honor. When we bend the knee to Jesus, he raises us up and seats us with him on his throne. And so if you potentially are wondering if it's worth it to wholeheartedly throw your lot in with Jesus, hear his answer. When we submit to Christ... He gives us true riches, true intimacy, true honor. And that makes dependence on Jesus a true joy. And so, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an invitation for any hearer to make up your mind and commit. It's Christ the King Sunday today, where we celebrate Jesus' absolute sovereignty and glory. And in our culture, it's the beginning of the Christmas season, post-Thanksgiving, where everything around us makes us hungry for more and tempts us to say, if I only had that one thing, that one possession, then I will need nothing. And so rest assured, when you walk out of these doors, your allegiance will be tested. So hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't need more possessions. We just need a companion. Someone who can really help us when times get tough. Jesus says to you, what you really need is me. And so submit to him with joy. Repent of your independence. Recommit to Jesus. Eagerly proclaim with your words and your life, Christ is king. And you will experience his presence, enabling you to thrive as a gloriously dependent church in the midst of a fiercely independent culture. We can depend on Jesus, and when we do, 
It is life. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this word. We are chastened by it. And even now, I'm sure we all see each one of us ways that we have accidentally, not on purpose, sometimes very much on purpose, said, we want to be independent. We declare our independence of you. Forgive us. And, and yet, thank you. Thank you for still pursuing us. Thank you that you don't storm off and never come back. Thank you that you even now are knocking. And so I pray for all of us that we would respond to that invitation to recommit to you. Please, Lord, through your spirit, help us to grow even more dependent on you. And as we do so, I pray that we would experience your grace and your presence ever nearer. We long to dine with you. We long to reign with you. Help us to buy from you and to entrust ourselves entirely to you. We want to depend on you. So give us life as we do so. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.